and welcome back. First of all, an announcement, which is Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to everyone. This is the last episode of CC Life Science for 2022. I'll be back on January 4th with another episode about new business models with Jason Scharf. There will be a couple of episodes of Life Science Marketing Radio before the end of the year, so make sure you're subscribed to those. I don't talk about it much on this podcast, but I earn my living producing custom content for life science companies. Largely, that involves interviewing executives and subject matter experts about their business, fascinating science, or the industry more broadly. Those interviews go a long way to building the know, like, and trust factor that text alone can't give you. If you're looking to expand your presence in 2023, there's a link to my calendar in the show notes. Now, let's jump into my conversation about prevention as a service. All right, I have with me Ramin Rafai. He is the founder and CEO of Unleash, where they are building a scalable preventative health platform. Ramin, welcome to CC Life Science. Chris, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I found you, I'm sure, somehow on LinkedIn talking about prevention, which has been on my mind lately, thinking about digital health and then thinking about, you know, going to some biopharma events and we're always going to be building new drugs. But I thought, you know, what are we doing on the other side of that to like prevent, you know, healthcare problems and, you know, are all these apps sufficient? How do you motivate people? How do you reach all the people you need to reach? So that's how we connected. Um, and so let's start out because you have a personal journey that gave you some insight into what health could be or shouldn't be. <laughs> Absolutely, Chris. It's, um, Look, healthcare entrepreneurship, healthcare leadership wasn't really uh, something that I planned out uh, early in my career. Uh, I came from an academic family and uh, I, I actually trained uh, in nuclear physics. Uh, and when you think about what's nuclear physics, you accelerate these subatomic particles uh, to speeds close to the speed of light, you smash them into each other, and then you kind of work backwards uh, on scales of you know, a millionth of a femtosecond, this is, you know, put a zero and then put a decimal point and 20 more zeros and then put a one. Those sorts of time scales, you're trying to really find the needle in the haystack, which is which is the physics. Um, it's uh, basically data science, measurement science, uh, and augmented with quite sophisticated, what I would call deep learning uh, or AI, uh, in order to be able to extract the physics. Um, well and truly into my academic career, uh, life was good. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, I had to uh, battle uh, a major illness. Uh, I spent about a year in hospital, uh, quite complex interventions, uh, multiple surgeries, uh, and uh, months of uh, recovery. Really, I had to learn again how to eat. I had to learn how to speak. Uh, and it's quite interesting uh, when you spend, you know, around a year, over a year in and out of the hospital, uh, you get a lot of time to think. Uh, and it's very hard to suppress a, uh, an analytical mind. Uh, and so you, you're lying in that hospital bed and wondering, uh, 
Um, why is it that we're fundamentally consuming healthcare as sick care? And you also make some very, what I would call, subtle observations. And you see the presence of what I would call an invisible hand that guides the day-to-day decision-making within a health system. And now, in hindsight, we call those financial incentives, really understanding that decisions aren't always made in the best interest uh, of the patient. And so you're here within a health system that isn't necessarily always optimized for the patient. Uh, And you start asking these deeper questions of what if things were different? And what can we do to change the current state of healthcare, which is consumed as sick care? And so this absolutely determined me to step into healthcare and see how can I take that deep analytical thinking and that training in a nuclear physics lab and apply it into the healthcare industry to really shift the way we think in the conversation further upstream and keep the population healthy, happier for longer. And so I entered the healthcare industry and I've been quite lucky over the past decade to have worked across medical devices, pharma, payers, uh, and really learned at a very detailed level what moves this industry forward. And I came up with one conclusion, and that is we're not going to disrupt this industry alone. And this is where it's so important to start adopting an external or an outside perspective on how we can shift the conversation or the consumption of, of healthcare towards health and away from sick care. One quite interesting, uh, effectively, sprint that I had in the healthcare industry was actually the privilege that I had to be part of the scale-up at SHL Medical. And SHL Medical solves for a very noble, noble cause, and that is let's give patients the tools so they can administer their therapies in the comfort and safety of their homes and do it in a very safe and efficacious manner. But when I looked at the growth of our business and the growth of the pipeline of biologics and biosimilars in the pharmaceutical industry, effectively what you recognize is the the growth of these very novel therapeutics also reflects the prevalence of chronic conditions in society. So as a society, we're getting sicker. And this is where we launched Unleash to shift our attention, shift our resources and focus to a point where how do we keep people healthy for longer so that we can avoid these debilitating chronic conditions? So, yeah, I, I, I like that you point out these chronic conditions. I mean, these are things that aren't necessarily, I mean, I'm sure many times they are unexpected. But, you know, in the ideal world, healthcare would be about the things that, popped up that you didn't expect maybe um but and so what we want to talk about today is how do we help people avoid those or if you get to that situation you know deal with it in a better way um and it's i'm sure it's a lot around behavior but there are probably barriers to those so what are what are the barriers that keep those things from being, you know, one, what are the barriers that um, maybe drive people towards chronic conditions or keep them from getting out of them or whatever? 
Uh, absolutely. That, that's a very interesting point, Chris. And, and I think a highly relevant topic when we start thinking about prevention as a whole. Um, I, I always ask people, I mean, what is health? Right. Health is nothing more than the sum of everyday decisions that we make. And it turns out the majority of chronic conditions and a large portion of even cancers, which is now largely being classified as a chronic condition, is preventable. But what happens is we've got a healthcare system. And if we just take the U.S. health system as an example, you've got four point two trillion dollars of healthcare spending that are focused on what we call 20% of health outcome drivers. And these are largely drivers, health outcome drivers, that are focused on your ability to access care within a medical setting. And so this 80% is missing. And the result of us focusing on the 20% is that now within the US population, and it's not too dissimilar you know, in Australia, you've got one in two adults with one or multiple chronic conditions. So now we come back to this decision-making process and these behaviors. And the good news is that when we think about prevention, well, prevention is actually not new. I think we saw in the pandemic, vaccines are a, a, a tool for what I would call mass prevention. It's, uh, it's one of the, 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 the greatest success stories um, that could ever be out there on, on deploying a preventative tool that has saved millions of lives. You and I, Chris, probably recall that we probably grew up in households where, you know, it was, at least I remember I grew up in a household where there were ashtrays in the living room. It was, it was very normal for guests to come and light up a cigarette. Um, but things have changed, right? Even as consumers, we're actually adopting more and more preventative behaviors. Um, and, and when you look at it, governments do prevention, universities do prevention, non-for-profits do prevention. But prevention itself has never scaled. But, you know, there's a, let's call it a change of government, and, you know, the funding changes, and uh, all of a sudden, the preventative initiatives all of a sudden vanish and disappear. And the reality is for politicians, investing in a hospital is going to bring more votes than, let's say, ensuring that citizens of the community have, ac have access to, um, let's say, uh, footpaths to go for a walk or, or even clean air. Yeah. So I'm just going to jump in. I mean, a hospital is tangible, right? A lot of prevention is intangible and the financial incentives like what you know it's sort of like how do you prove a negative how do you pay for something that doesn't happen right absolutely and i think this is largely comes down to ensuring that prevention is to some extent just part of everyday living there was a program that it was run, um, it's a diabetes prevention program. It was run for the Medicare Advantage population in the US. And what they saw is they couldn't even reach enrollment numbers. And the reason is because prevention was treated as this almost outside external effort that you need to undertake, as opposed to really thinking, how do we just make the everyday decisions that we make easier 
and health positive in terms of the impact they have on ourselves, on our friends, on our families, loved ones, and and on our communities. And that's where we need to shift our efforts towards. And the good news is we've got the tools to do it. We've got the digital tools and the technology to be able to uh, effectively generate those insights, generate those interventions, and transition this sort of conversation around healthcare to one that's positive and and aspirational. So um, this podcast is generally about artificial intelligence, machine learning, that sort of thing. So we're going to get to like sort of the financial incentives in a moment, but tell me about the machine learning aspect of this in the data and how it's used. Absolutely. Uh, Well, let's think about it like this. The system so far has focused on your 20% of um, basically clinical drivers. Now the 80% is missing. Now this 80% really has two very significant components. It's what we call the environmentum and the behaviorum. The environmentum looks at the social determinants of health. And the behaviorum looks at your day-to-day health behaviors. And so our focus at Unleash is that 80%. Because if you can address the 80%, you can actually move the needle and prevent a lot of these debilitating chronic conditions and, and cancers. Now, the example I use is, is the omics space. Now, the omics space is very successful and, and tr- you know, there is no shortage of direct-to-consumer healthcare companies that have emerged on the back of, let's say, genomic sequencing, proteomics, and, and the likes, which they basically, the promise is, get, get your genome sequenced and we will deliver personalized insights. Now, this is all valuable. But what's missing is that effectively longitudinal data that shows the day-to-day behaviors that that we adopt. And we have a solution for that. And that's very simply put, it's your smartphone. And it turns out the digital footprint that we generate on social media, on devices, and the wearables that we may or may not use, are actually better predictors of your health, morbidities, mortality, than any omics measurement or any clinical measurement. We see it today. We see companies that are emerging that are using your digital footprint on your phone to predict the onset of Alzheimer's 10 years before there is any measurable signal within a clinical setting. We see it the same for mild cognitive cognitive impairment, even major depressive disorders. The ability to predict the onset of a major depressive um, uh, event. So, can I ask? Please. I just want to jump in because a couple things sort of triggered some memory. I had a gentleman on the podcast early on this year talking about how, for example, an Amazon Alexa can detect changes in your voice. I'm thinking about how your smartphone, one, is listening to you, at least when you're speaking to someone. And, you know, the pictures you post and where you are. And, you know, as you mentioned, the environment dome 
your zip code is a huge determinant of your health to begin with, right? Um, but on the other side of that is concerns about privacy and surveillance and so on. How do you get people, you know, comfortable with the idea? And then, and how do you actually secure it? I was thinking like, we all are putting data out there and I'm presuming that for this to work, someone has to agree to participate, right? By allowing you to look at my Instagram feed and track where I'm going and other behaviors so that your software, your app can make recommendations about my behavior. So that, that's a great uh, question, um, Chris. And the, the way we look at it is, yesterday the conversation was, your zip code is your health code. Today, really the conversation for everyday consumers has shifted is that your digital footprint is your health code. Because just like your zip code determines your social determinants of health, your effectively digital footprint mimics that similar environment. So the people we're connected to on social media, the sort of conversations we have, the sort of posts that we like and, and engage with, all of these sum up to create a quite a detailed picture on who we are, how we behave, and how we go about making day-to-day decisions. And the way, we, the way you could look at it is social media companies are using this data to effectively ensure that you like the next post, right? And this is kind of a behavior change that's used to drive advertising, drive sales. The question I present is, why don't we look at these uh, effectively um, engagement and behavior change models and put it towards helping everyday consumers to make better health decisions for themselves? And this is solely done on an opt-in basis. So just like when we, we download an Instagram and we opt in access to certain aspects that Instagram can start personalizing our feed, the same personalization happens and the same effectively uh, what we call deep digital phenotyping happens when the, the consumer opt, opts in. And that allows anyone uh, who's doing the deep, deep digital phenotyping to really understand the consumer and support the, their day-to-day decision-making. Okay. <clears throat> yes, I like that. I mean, I understand it. I'm curious now, let's talk about the financial incentives. One that came up for me just as you were speaking is, you know, everybody says, if if the product is free or if the app is free, you are the product. Now you're turning that around a little bit. But, and I know you're going to explain to me where the financial incentives come from and so on, but I'm thinking now, can we get people to pay a little bit so they have some skin in the game to say, you know, I'm paying so that I get this, not just I'm going to get my data out there and let what, however it works, come back to me and with recommendations. Yeah, it's so, so it's, it's quite an interesting point you make because... I think it's very important to 
kind of look retrospectively at how the industry evolved, has evolved to get to this point. If you look at digital health, so over the past decade, digital health companies that emerged really aligned with the financial systems of the established healthcare, traditional healthcare. And that, again, is a system which is not really optimized for the consumer or the patient. It's focused on billing. It's focused on workflow management and so on. So these all became tools within a, a traditional healthcare system. And then emerged direct-to-consumer healthcare. Now, direct-to-consumer healthcare really went, well, digital health didn't really build around the consumer, will build around the consumer, but it's going to cost the consumer. And what we see is the limited scalability of direct-to-consumer platforms, largely inaccessible because of this low affordability. And so you've got to fundamentally think is if we're going to move the needle on prevention how do we make it accessible to the masses? And so what we're focused on at Unleash is the everyday people supporting them with everyday decisions. And so this becomes important that you align incentives with a key stakeholder who is going to ensure that the everyday consumers can benefit from this and the preventative tools are accessible to everyone. Okay, so who's paying for this? Who's putting money in um, to make this happen? And how does it work out for all the parties? Uh, absolutely. So this all came from a, quite a, a deep insight that we developed as we were building uh, Unleash. And that is that the everyday brands that we love, that we buy, have a far greater incentive, influence, and actually inspiration to help us adopt these healthy habits far greater than the medical economy or anyone within the traditional healthcare environment. And when you look at it, it's really an alignment of incentives, an alignment of values, an alignment of outcomes, which we enable at Unleash. And so let me zoom in on a couple of those words. One is incentives. And it's very simply put, healthier consumers earn more, buy more, buy more premium products. And so there's a complete economic alignment between health, healthy consumers or healthy community, healthy society and everyday brands. But the second most important word there, Chris, is what we call influence. Because I know, and the, and the people who are loyal to the brands that they love, they know that, let's say, a pair of Nike shoes has a far greater influence on an individual than their doctor or than their local hospital. And so when we think of prevention being everyday behaviours, the brands have a much stronger presence in our daily lives. And so this enables us to work with a stakeholder who is actually present and influential in the day-to-day -day life of consumers. And the last part is what I call inspiration. And this is important because for too long, the conversation in, in healthcare, unfortunately, 
has been a negative conversation. It's always the mandate has been the disease. The mission has been disease management. And COVID didn't help. COVID exasperated that. So it's so important now to shift the conversation around health towards one that is aspirational, one that's accessible, one that shows staying healthy can actually become affordable. And this is where at Unleash, we're aligning the incentives of the brands with the incentives of the consumer so that we can scale preventative health and actually create an entirely new experience for how consumers engage with brands. And savvy brands get this because when you think about elements around ESG, the S standing for social, brands want to increase their brand equity by increasing their health equity as part of their brand equity. This is now consumerism for good. And so we're determined to work with brands to make preventative health accessible. And let me be clear, when we talk about brands, it's not just, let's call it the Nikes and the Starbucks of the world. We're actually talking about brands in the pharmaceutical industry, brands in the healthcare brands. They're all brands that can play a positive um, uh, impact in keeping their societies, their communities healthy. So help me out with, I am going to go back to Nike, for example, which is sort of a, you know, you could say a health oriented brand. How do they know that their investment, I'm presuming they're paying for some part of it and the influence that they get comes back to them and not somebody else. In other words, like if they're making suggestions or delivering content in some way and if I do the right behaviors, I get a discount on my next pair of shoes. Is it that transactional or how does it work? Yeah, it, it's, it's not that transactional. And this really comes down to the complexity of what we call behavioral economics and how consumers make decisions. So it's by no means a transactional relationship, but rather the goal of that relationship is to Effectively, if you want to think about it within, let's let's call it a life sciences or a healthcare environment, how do we actually increase the efficacy of a pair of Nike shoes? How do we actually transition a pair of Nike shoes from just a very high quality um, piece of um, footwear to one which is actually supporting everyday consumers with losing weight, improving their blood pressure, moving more? And that's the journey that we're redefining and rebuilding for everyday consumers, backed by sponsors like the big brands of the world, like the Nikes, um, who want to build these more, let's call it, dynamic and aspirational relationships with their consumers. So it is a way for them to have more influence in that sense. I I like that. And it's... um... It's more of a customer success model. You have the product. Let us help you use it better, right? Absolutely. So so I kind of want to shift the conversation away to thinking, you know, you're going to get a discount. This is really, this is about fundamentally changing our decision making and helping us make everyday decisions towards net positive health outcomes for ourselves. 
So I was going to ask as my last question something. Obviously, food, food consumption, the right food, the right amount of food is a big deal. I mean, honestly, I struggle with it. Um, but I try to pay attention and I do get a newsletter um, that sort of keeps me on my toes, shall we say, even if I don't, you know, if I know I'm not doing the right thing all the time. But it does seem like there's an opportunity for certain food producers or people in the food economy to to have some influence as well. Absolutely. So end of the day, when you think about brands, we're thinking about brands who want to continue to improve their role in the health and well-being of their customers and more importantly, the, the, their communities. And so you can think about it, everything from, you know, as we mentioned, uh, apparel, footwear, food, beverage, and all the way even through to pharmaceuticals. Because today we're having pharmaceutical companies, Chris, reach out to us and going, well, how would it look differently if a one of a therapy, a therapeutic specifically, was augmented with Unleash. And, and we know, and I know, having been in the life sciences and medical device company uh, um, industry prior to this, that whether it's a semaglutide for type 2 diabetes or obesity or a PCSK9 inhibitor for hyperlipidemia, drugs work much better when we augment it with the underlying behavioral aspects that are required to ensure that therapy succeeds. I published a paper in 2019, and we actually looked at the increasing number of type 2 diabetes drugs that entered the market, all of increasing clinical efficacy, and then we mapped on top of that what we call the health of the population. And it was very simply defined by A1C level below 7%. So the percentage of the population that by clinical definition has their A1C under control. And there was a complete divergence. More drugs, more efficacious drugs. And guess what? The health of the population is not improving. And a lot of these elements come back to the behavioral aspects because Drugs work far better when you address the underlying behavioral causes that resulted in that chronic condition. Nice. Ramin Rafael, this has been really an interesting thing. I love uh, what I love about this. Of course, we're talking about artificial intelligence and some machine learning, but also new business models, which is another thing that I'm you know, interested to talk to people about um, just new ways of thinking are what's going to make a change. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure's mine. And, and I've said it before and, and I'll say it quite often. In my opinion, the biggest opportunities in health are going to be outside of healthcare this coming decade. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you. That's going to do it for this year. Remember that sharing a podcast counts as a gift, not only to the recipient, but to the host. 
Joking aside, I'm grateful for the gift of your attention. Enjoy the holidays, and I'll talk to you in January. Bye-bye. Thank you.